0: Hello and welcome to the Ask the Geographer podcast series from the Department of Education and Outdoor Learning at the Royal Geographical Society with IBG. I'm Harry. In each podcast I'll meet geographers from around the world to ask them about topical events, timely publications and geographical research. Dr. Katie Raku is a senior lecturer with the University of St. Andrews, specialising in paleoecology, the relationship between living organisms and their environment in the past, and paleoclimatology, the study of ancient climates. She specifically pieces together evidence from fossil pollen and sediments to create a picture of past vegetation to reveal prehistoric ecological and climatic change. Currently, Katie is working on tropical peatlands from several different perspectives, including their long-term millennial scale, history, biodiversity, carbon storage function, and the more human geography angle of how rural Amazonian communities use and value their peatlands. Hi Katie, thanks for joining us today.
1: Hi, thanks for having me along.
0: With my geography student hat on, the first question is, I thought peatlands were only found in cold, wet, northernly latitudes.
1: Uh, right, that's a very good point. So when we talk about tropical peatlands, we're talking about the peatlands that occur in a band of latitude between about 23 and a half degrees north and south of the equator. The tropical latitudes. But you're absolutely right that peatlands are found at high latitude. And in fact, most of the world's peatlands are there. But there are also substantial areas of peatland at tropical latitudes. So the thing is that peat forms anywhere that the balance between the accumulation and decomposition of organic matter is tipped in favour of accumulation. So when I talk about organic matter, I mean uh, roots, leaves, stems and woods and so on. So where peat's forming, it's because that organic matter is accumulating faster than it can be decomposed. Now that happens where the soil is waterlogged for most of the year, where conditions are acidic and where nutrient levels are really low. Now in boreal and temperate peatlands, there's an additional factor and that's cold that contributes to slowing the rate of decomposition. Now it's not cold in the lowland tropics, ever pretty much, but plant productivity is very high. And that means that inputs of organic matter to the peat are also very high. So you get this tipping of the balance between decomposition and accumulation tipping towards accumulation and the organic matter builds up over time. So I could also say about um, where peatlands within the tropics uh, occur, so they occur both at low and high altitudes. In the Andes, that mountain chain uh, along the west coast of South America for example, there are peat bogs forming at high altitude. These have a lot in common with the high latitude peatlands, such as those that form in upland Britain. So they're similar in the kinds of vegetation that grow there, uh, the climatic conditions under which they're forming, and also the threats that they face from human activities, like grazing, for example. Now the lowland peatlands in the tropics, those in uh, lowland Amazonia, and those are the ones I've been working on, these are really quite different. And though they share the characteristics of a high water table, low nutrient levels, high acidity uh, with their counterparts in in the north and at high altitudes, they tend to be densely forested and they face a different set of threats from human activities.
0: That's so interesting that the high latitude peatlands um, are similar to the peatlands that we have in in Britain. You've mentioned that you work in lowland peatlands. Where is your your study area specifically.
1: So my study area is a, is a an area called the Pastaza Marignon Foreland Basin, to give it its full name. It's actually a geological feature. It's a subsiding basin that formed as the Andean mountain chain was uplifted uh, to, the, to the west of this region. And it's named after the two major rivers that flow through the basin, the Pastaza, that's a tributary of the Marignon River, and the Marignon River, is a major tributary of the Amazon River.
0: And when you work there, Katie, do you um, work out of Iquitos? And is that a special city due to its remoteness? Is that correct?
1: Yeah, that's right. Um, We always start off uh, our field work. We always start off in the city of Iquitos. It's a a city of about 400,000 people, Um, but it's really special in that it, it can only be reached by river or air. It's not connected to a wider road network. Its entry on Wikipedia, for example, says it's the largest city in the world that cannot be reached by road. Um, And it's not entirely true because it depends where you're going from. There is one other small town which is connected to Iquitos by road. It's called Nauta. It's um, on the banks of the Amazon. And Nauta is connected to Iquitos by 100 kilometres of road. But if you wanted to go anywhere else, (laughs) if it's Iquitos or Nauta, beyond that, uh, you have to go by air or by river.
0: Can I ask a really simple question next? Uh, Why should we protect tropical peatlands uh, and how big a carbon store are they?
1: First of all, they're large carbon stores. Um, Peatlands globally, they cover only 3% of the land area. But they represent 30 percent, so about a third of the total soil carbon pool. So you could say that peatlands really, um, they they really do their bit in terms of the carbon cycle, even though they don't cover such a large area. For tropical peatlands in particular, um, recent estimates say that they store somewhere between 155 and 288 gigatons of carbon. A gigaton is a billion metric tons. And they cover between 90 and 170 million hectares. So that makes up about a third of the total peatland area on Earth. So the this recent this recent paper who came up with this new estimate, um, they they reckon that this amount, this stock of carbon is an equivalent is equivalent to the amount of carbon being emitted by burning fossil fuels at a rate of 10 gigatons of carbon per year over the next 15 to 30 years so maybe that helps to put it in context you know that's that's a lot that's a lot of carbon really um and and it's not only the store as well i think i i mentioned already that they're also, sequestering carbon, that means they're taking carbon in from the atmosphere, and locking it away and storing it up. So they're incredibly valuable in terms of a, a natural solution to mitigating climate change. Other reasons that they're, they're important is their biodiversity. We always call it their unique biodiversity. I think we're still looking for a really good term to, to, to summarise the, why they're important in terms of their biodiversity. Because if you took an area of peatland in Peru and an adjacent area of unflooded classical terra firme rainforest and compared the diversity, peatland comes out very very low down (laughs) in biodiversity terms, around perhaps 100 species in a hectare, whereas terra firme rainforest has about 300 species in a hectare. And then the next hectare might have a different 300 species. So in terms of absolute biodiversity, they're not high, but they contribute to that regional biodiversity. So how different one area is from another. Because the peatlands are home to to peatland specialists, um, plants that can tolerate wet, low nutrient and acidic conditions. Those are the ones that really thrive there. Well, we've identified three main types of peatland vegetation in the Peruvian Amazon. Firstly, there's open peatlands with no trees, which look, I won't say they look like a Scottish peatland because they, they really don't. But they look more like a, a kind of a marshland or a fen, you know, with sedges and ferns and grasses, that sort of, you imagine a fen type environment, a marsh, if you like, that's sort of what they look like. Then secondly, there's the palm swamps. So these are dominated by a palm species called Mauritia flexuosa. Now, these are really important because they're the most widespread kind of peatland. They're the ones that cover the biggest area. And also they're a source of a kind of fruit, which is very, very important uh, in this region of Peru. It's an absolute staple in everybody's diet, even in the cities there are people on street corners peeling them and washing them and selling them fresh you can just buy a bag and eat them in in the street um they make them into ice cream into cake into jam um so economically they're very important traded between um forest villages uh, and transported into the city but as far as i know they don't really make it out of peru um so it's very very much a, a, a peruvian thing um the fruit are known locally as aguaje. I was hesitating a little bit there because um, these these trees Moritia flexuosa or the aguaje palm known locally uh, also grow widely in Ecuador, Venezuela, Brazil. Um, and I must admit I don't know how important the fruits are in those places. I suspect they are just as important, but certainly in Peru they are uh, you know more important than you can imagine. Arriving there, and never having heard of this fruit (laughs) everywhere. (laughs) It's really important. Okay. Then, thirdly, there's the these so-called peatland pole forests. Now, the pole forests they're characterised by lots of very closely spaced, thin stemmed, short, slow growing trees. They look like poles, so hence the name pole forest. Now, they look like this because they're growing on the thickest peat. Now, those thick peats have grown up through the accumulation of organic matter above the level of the floodplain as that organic matter has accumulated over time, over uh, thousands of years. Now, since they're raised up and they're no longer flooded by river water, they can only receive their water and their nutrients from rain. Now, rain does not contain large amounts of nutrients. Uh, So we've got an equivalent situation to a raised bog in the UK, only with with trees growing on it. So these are the type of peatlands which have the highest carbon store per area because the peat in these raised areas has been accumulating longest and it's at its thickest, um, it can uh, can reach up to about eight metres and this makes them a really high conservation priority.
0: And can I ask Katie, what are the challenges and threats to these tropical peatlands?
1: Well, the main threat to tropical peatlands is anthropogenic um, human degradation. So in, in the last 20 years or so, we've seen the effect that clearing and draining peatland forest has, um, particularly in the peatlands of Southeast Asia, in Indonesia in particular. And This is actually where the, the largest extent of tropical peatlands exists, is, is in Southeast Asia, particularly in Indonesia. Uh, In this region, the the forests have been cleared by cutting and burning. They've been drained to lower the water table by digging drainage ditches. This has been done across vast areas of peatland, um, primarily for oil plantations, um, also for uh, trees for for paper pulp uh, as well. Now, the result of this is not only that the peatlands stop sequestering carbon, but they also lose large amounts of carbon as the upper layers of peat dry out and the organic matter decomposes. So that releases the carbon as carbon dioxide that was previously locked up in the peat. It releases it to the atmosphere. Now that situation is made worse as dry peat is highly flammable. So the peatlands also burn, often really they, they burn quite to some depth, releasing even more carbon dioxide to the atmosphere.
0: Your work promotes sustainable conservation. What needs to happen in Pastaza, Marion, Fallen Basin for peatlands to survive and prosper?
1: It needs strong legal protection for peatlands, which requires the recognition and mapping of peatlands. So where they are, what they're like, and an understanding of their particular vulnerability to clearance and drainage and their extreme contribution to carbon dioxide emissions once they've been degraded. I think. I think. Secondly, we need to develop opportunities to generate income and improved livelihoods for rural communities, and those need to be through through ways which are sustainable and also consistent with continued carbon sequestration in peatlands. So that means keeping them wet and ideally keeping them under their natural vegetation cover. Then I think there's a third thing as well, um, which is it, it's related to the other two but but incorporating the peatland carbon store into the nationally determined contribution of Peru to climate change mitigation that will make it pay better for the government to keep peatlands than to exploit the oil reserves that happen to be in these areas or to develop oil palm plantations on them so overall, I think we need to make it possible for communities and ecosystems to thrive in a way that is consistent with keeping the peatlands wet, keeping the carbon in the ground and under their natural vegetation cover. While having incentives, you know, through valuing peatlands for their carbon, for their resources, etc. In a way which means it's, it's not economically viable to exploit them. It's not economically viable to plant them with oil palm.
0: It's, it's been so interesting hearing about your work on tropical peatlands, Aguaca. Um, did I get that right? Aguaca? Um,
1: Aguaje. Yeah,
0: Aguake. Uh, Aguaje. Aguaje. Um, uh, oh, that's a terrible pronunciation for me, I'm sorry. Uh, and the rural Amazonian communities that you work with. Um, thank you so much for joining us today, Katie.
1: Thank you very much for the opportunity to talk about
0: it. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please subscribe to the Ask the Geographer podcast series. On iTunes and SoundCloud.com. Be inspired and stay informed with the Society's wide range of resources, many of which are free. School membership unlocks access to other excellent resources, including online lectures and many other tailor-made benefits for teachers and students. Access our resources at www.rgs.org/schools.